We hope you're enjoying your summer so far. I cannot believe that it's going to end pretty soon. Adashina Koiki on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. And no matter how many times this happens, which is every single year, I marvel at the fact at how these years just pass by so fast. And I marvel at the fact at how many of these podcasts go by. This is episode number 11 that we're starting, and we have a couple of very good guests on this show. Uh, this past weekend was Hall of Fame weekend in the National Football League. Seven new inductees into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, which took place in Canton, Ohio. The Hall of Fame game also took place on Sunday, the Buffalo Bills taking on the New York Giants, and those franchises had a great inducted into the Hall of Fame over the weekend. Michael Strahan of the New York Giants and Andre Reed, the great wide receiver for the Buffalo Bills, being inducted into the Hall of Fame. And if you did watch this past weekend, you saw that there were many, many Buffalo Bills fans that made their way west to see one of their footballing heroes get inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. One of those fans is a guest of our show in episode number 11. She's a staff attorney, Christine McMenamin, a staff attorney in the Buffalo area, joins us to talk about her footballing hero as a child, Andre Reed, being inducted into the Hall of Fame, and also talked about the moment in which she got to personally congratulate Andre Reed on his amazing accomplishments. So we talked to Christine McMenamin about the bills of the past and the bills of the present. And also with the summer about to end, football season about to start, and also the National Hockey League season about to start. And we talk with probably the authority on NHL news and insider information in this country, the authority of all things NHL, E.J. Raddick. NHL analyst on the NHL Network joining us to break down everything NHL free agency and all the NHL news this offseason. A very, very busy NHL offseason. So many players changing addresses. He also talks about the P.K. Subban Montreal Canadiens uh, arbitration drama and possible arbitration drama for a star player and its team coming down the pipeline in a couple of years. So a very insightful interview with E.J. Rath- about all things NHL leading up to the 2014-2015 season. That interview starts in another four to five seconds, and we will see you at the very end of the show. With the calendar turning to August, that means we are only one month away from the beginning of the NHL season, well, at least the NHL preseason. And this summer, a flurry of moves have happened in NHL free agency. A lot of big names in the NHL changing teams and changing addresses. And joining us right now to talk about all things NHL free agency and a few other things in the NHL, our NHL oracle. E.J. Raddick of the NHL Network, (laughs) NHL Insider and Analyst on the NHL Network. First of all, E.J., how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Oh, no problem. Uh, My first question to you in this NHL free agency, I want to get your opinion on some of the big winners in free agency. I know the uh, Sabres made a lot of moves. They got Brian Johnson, got Matt Molson. Uh, The Dallas Stars not necessarily signing a free agent in this situation, but trading uh, for Jason Spezza. Uh, would those two teams be considered the biggest winners? And uh, your opinions on some of the other teams that, in your opinion, won big in free agency so far? 
Yeah, I, I would tell you this. I, I think the teams that win big and free HP are the teams that don't have to sign anybody mm-hmm. because they've already signed their players and uh, they, they're already set moving forward. There are not a lot of teams that are in that circumstance. I mean, the LA Kings come to mind as uh, the defending champs. It's been a great offseason for the Kings. They won the Stanley Cup. They had all their draft picks plus a couple of extras, and they didn't have to do anything silly on the free agent market. So uh, they've obviously to me are the big, big winners, but... Uh, of the teams that had to get out there and do things, Dallas making those uh, moves, a trade for Jason Spezza, a free agent pickup of Alashemsky. They had particular needs there in a very, very tough conference, and I think those were nice moves. I think uh, St. Louis, again, a need player. They needed to really be better in the middle of their group at center. The best center on the market was Paul Stasny. They got him on a four-year deal, so, I mean, I think that is nice. I mean, the money... When you get the free agency, you're going to overpay. You got seven million dollars for a season, uh, but for your term, I think that does limit things if uh, if it does not work out there. So from that standpoint, not a bad contract and a guy who fits. And I think the Tampa Bay Lightning in the East went out and made a lot of little moves that I think will help their team moving forward. Some veteran pieces, and again, some things that fit their needs, adding to a good young team and a team that has Steven Stamkos coming back healthy, hopefully for the full season this year. He missed so much time last year after breaking that leg. So, uh, you know, for me, those are the couple that uh, I thought it really, uh, they did what they needed to do. Uh, you mentioned the Dallas Stars and you mentioned the tough Western Conference. With that Jason Spezza trade, and you also mentioned the signing of Alex Hemsky, uh, did they signal their intentions that not only do they think they're going to be competitive in the Western Conference, that they may take that next step and possibly win the Western Conference? Uh, they were so close to forcing a Game 7 against the uh, Anaheim Ducks if it wasn't for a near-miraculous comeback uh, by the Ducks in that Game 6. So have the Stars really signaled their intentions that they believe that their time is now in the 2014-2015 season? Well, they're moving forward. I mean, there's no question. Got to remember, this is a team that has missed the playoffs a bunch of years in a row. Now, last year they come in, they have a new general manager in Jim Neal, a new head coach in Lindy Ruff. Jim Neal went out uh, and did a terrific job in trading for Tyler Sagan. You just cannot find young, number-one type centers uh, unless you draft them. I mean, it's just one of those things. You don't find them. And they saw a situation in Boston where the Bruins uh, were one of the few teams that are pretty heavy in that spot with Patrice Bergeron and with David Krejci. Uh, there was some unhappiness uh, with uh, with Sagan there. And, uh, you know, this is a kid that we're, it's already signed. They don't even have to deal with giving him a new contract. He had a five-year contract extension from the Boston Bruins at reasonable money. And they were able to insert him as a number one center. He was uh, – and. For you know, my take, I thought it was just a great deal at the time, adding a player like that, and uh, they make the playoffs last year. As you said, they almost forced the game seven with the Ducks. They were very competitive against a very good team. They add Spetsa and Hemsky, so now they have second, you know, kind of deeper scoring depth here now. Second line attack that you have to be concerned with, and uh, a guy like Spetsa, a guy like Hemsky could help their power play as well. I think they're still uh, still trying to move forward on defense. They've got some young people back there that. They're going to have to ask more of those guys. Carly Wetton has been a very good goalie, but can he get them to where they want to go? That's still a question mark. But I think they've certainly improved themselves. Uh, they're going to be a better team. They're not going to sneak up on anybody, certainly with that group of forwards. Um, but I think this is a team, Jim Neal, the general manager there, who was a longtime assistant in Detroit, he's coming and done a nice job, and I think the Dallas Stars are moving in the right direction. 
But that said, they are in a very, very tough conference and maybe the toughest division in hockey now when you think of Chicago and St. Louis. Colorado won the division last year, young and getting better. Minnesota had a very good year last year. They're getting better. Dallas, uh, Nashville get their goalie, Pecoretti, back this year. Um, and then you have Winnipeg kind of at the bottom of that group. But that's a, a tough group of teams. So uh, I think the Dallas Stars have made a lot of good moves. They're moving in the right direction. I got a lot of faith in the GM, Jim Hill. But they are in a tough conference and a very, very tough division. It's not going to be easy. Once again, talking with E.J. Raddick of the NHL Network, joining us talking about NHL free agency and the NHL in the summer. Some teams that might have had needs and didn't necessarily address them or really got hurt uh, via free agency. It seems as if a lot of the teams that got hurt in free agency are uh, the original six teams. Uh, Boston wasn't able to uh, sign Jerome McGinley. The Rangers, you mentioned Tampa Bay getting pieces. They got pieces from the New York Rangers. Uh, a lot of pieces of yeah. uh, Brian Boyle. Anton Strollman. Uh, it almost seems as if some of the biggest losers were some of the original six teams. Would that be fair to say in free agency? Yeah, I think that I, I do think that's true. I mean, some of those teams. I mean, the Boston Bruins were just limited. Uh, they were hamstrung financially. Um, they had uh, some of the bonus money that Jerome Ginla was able to earn in his last contract. That rolls forward towards the cap this year, and that left the Boston Bruins uh, that extra money left them in a little bit of a tough spot. They couldn't offer Jerome the kind of uh, money that uh, would entice him to stay in Boston. He wanted to. It was a great fit there for him. But uh, the Colorado Islands were able to come in and offer a pretty big deal, three-year deal, $5 million per season. So, I mean, he leaves. The Bruins, I think the Bruins will move forward. They've got a very good organization, but I know they would have liked to keep Jerome if they could. It didn't work out for them. The Rangers lost some pieces, but the Rangers also went out and were able to add some pieces back in with uh, – in particular, Dan Boyle, who replaces Anton Strollman on defense. I I like Dan Boyle a lot. I think he'll help them on the power play. It's only a two-year term. He's a little long on the tooth, but a real competitive guy. He's a guy that can move the puck still. So uh, I don't know if that's a huge loss there. Uh, I know the one team, though, that really wanted to do things and, and really went out there and tried to do things, another original six team, the Detroit Red Wings. And that's a, that's a team that has been a destination four free agents over the last couple of decades because they had the terrific talent. They had people wanted to go to Detroit and play. Well, the Eisenmans have retired, Livstrom retired a couple of years ago. The Ravens are not quite the same destination they once were. And they tried to make a pitch for Dan Boyle. And, and, and in particular, you know, they tried to make a pitch for Matt Niskanen. And uh, they offered a similar money to Niskanen that he ended up getting in Washington. And uh, Niskanen not to go to the Washington Capitals. I would have probably argued to Matt to say, hey, go to Detroit and play for Mike Babcock in a really good structured system there. That would help him, but he opted to go in a different direction and go to Washington. So when I think about the teams that wanted to do things that really couldn't, the Detroit Red Wings stand out because I guess it's just a sign that times have changed a little bit. That was a destination for free agents, and right now, even when they offer comparable money, all of a sudden now the free agents are, are taking a different turn. It just goes to show you that these guys, when they get on the market, they take a lot of things into account, and one of them is the opportunity to win and to play with other terrific players. And the Wings have a, a nice group of young players now, but certainly they're not the Red Wings that uh, we saw five, six, seven years ago. You killed two birds with one stone. My next question was about whether <laughs> Detroit was a free agent's paradise. Um, and I guess I'll switch it a little bit in terms of the Detroit Red Wings. One of the things that a lot of people were getting at in terms of what Detroit needed was not just a defenseman, but a defenseman that's right-handed. And Yeah, uh, right, yeah. Yeah, so 
I just want to ask you, for those that don't necessarily know the nuances of the NHL and just hockey in general and the balance between left-handed defensemen and right-handed defensemen, why such the need for Detroit particularly for a right-handed defenseman? Is it just that they have well, a lot of left-handed defensemen? Yeah, they, they're loaded on, with left-shot defense. They really, as a team, they're loaded with left-shot players to begin with. They don't have a lot of right-shot players. And uh, on the blue line, they have all these lefties. You'd like to have a right-shot defenseman just to be able, in certain situations, to set a guy up for uh, maybe a one-time opportunity on a power play on the top of the left circle. That's an easy one-time shot there. So uh, that's one reason. There are, you know, sometimes you just want to have that right shot guy on the right side, on his strong side, on his forehand, being able to go back in the defensive zone and take pucks out that way and make that easier play. Uh, I think you like to have a certain balance there. Mike Babcock, it's interesting, the coach of the Red Wings, he talked about that very thing when he was involved with coaching Team Canada at the Olympics. Of course, Babcock was involved with that group picking the team, and he was vocal in the fact that he wanted to have righties and lefties on each side and, and have a balance there, and so much so that when they picked the team, they did go out in, with the Canadian defensemen. The best Canadian defensemen are right shot guys. Mm-hmm. So they went out and, in particular, added a market with Glassick on the left and a Dan Hughes just to add left shot guys because when you think about Team Canada's selection process, I mean, they have. Like I, like I mentioned, the two guys I mentioned, they also have uh, Alex Petrangelo and P.K. Subban. I mean, they've got a number of good right-shot defensemen, but Babcock wanted balance, and I'm sure that's what he would like in Detroit, but it's not so easy when you're putting together one of 30 teams in the National Hockey League as opposed to picking from the elite uh, te- to put together a Team Canada squad. So uh, they would they would have, uh, you know, Niskanen was the guy they looked at, Dan Boyle was the guy they looked at, Anton Strollman was the guy they looked at, all right-shot defensemen. But in the end, all three of those guys decided to go to other places. You mentioned P.K. Subban, and P.K. Subban and his team, the Montreal Canadiens, are getting ready and are currently uh, now in an arbitration battle in terms of P.K. Subban's deal and his demands versus the uh, offer, the initial offer that the Montreal Canadiens uh, offered him. My question to you is, uh, how, do, how does the Montreal front office view P.K. Subban in your opinion? He is someone that a lot of people love and a lot of people, uh, let's just say, don't necessarily love in terms of uh, his co- uh, confidence on the ice and what people perceive as possible cockiness. So, uh, in your opinion, what do you think Montreal's views of P.K. Subban are? Well, I think the Montreal Canadiens have to know that P.K. Subban is a, uh elite defenseman. Uh, he's a guy that can, uh, you know, these, these are the kind of players you just don't, uh, you know, grab onto that easily. It's like I mentioned before, Jim Nell trading for a number one center and Tyler Sagan. You know, number one defenseman, number one centers, these guys are really hard to find. It's a 30-team league, and I would tell you that really elite number one defensemen, there are probably maybe, uh, you know, somewhere in the area of 15 guys, you know, give or take a few on either side, depending upon who's making up that list, that really fit that category. Uh, same thing with centers, it's roughly the same number. So when you think about here, the Montreal Canadiens, they have one of these guys. This is the core guy that has been the guy, a guy they drafted in it and a guy they're going to move forward with. In the last contract, they wanted to do a bridge deal, what we call a bridge deal, to get from the first contract to later on and, and have P.K. Subban prove a little bit more about what he is as a player and uh, and go from there. When you do a bridge deal, you set yourself up for, you're hoping the player really performs well, I would think, because you want to be successful as a team. 
P.K. Subban did perform very well. He continued to grow as a player. He won a Norris Trophy. And here we sit in a situation now where the Montreal Canadiens, now if they're thinking about a long-term deal with Subban, look at the marketplace, which has changed dramatically from where it was a couple of years ago when they did that bridge deal to where it is now. And I know talking to P.K.'s representatives, the Newport Sports Management Group, I mean, they could have done a long-term deal with P.K. Subban. Montreal Canadiens could have done a deal with in roughly eight years and roughly five and a half to six million per season. And that would be viewed probably at this point and where we stand now as a bargain for P.K. Subban. But the Canadians opted to kind of play hardball. They wanted to go with this bridge deal. Uh, the, the negotiations got somewhat contentious. But in the end, a player like P.K. Subban at that part of his career does not have a lot of... Uh, real options unless a team comes in with an offer sheet, which did not happen. So he signed the British deal, he's moved forward, and now he's got more of the hammer because he's getting more, he has arbitration rights, as we see that has played out on this Friday, he had the arbitration hearing, and he is getting closer and closer now to unrestricted free agency in a circumstance where the Montreal Canadiens could, at that time, lose him and get nothing in return, which would be a disastrous thing for the franchise. So, the Canadians probably don't want to pay as much as P.K. Subban wants, but in the last negotiation, they had a chance to do a long-term deal and, and kind of bet on P.K. Subban. They decided to take a more cautious approach at that time, and now they're in a situation now where if they're looking for an eight-year deal for P.K. Subban, instead of paying him five and a half or six million a year, they're probably looking at paying him eight and a half, nine, nine and a half, maybe more. Because if this player went on to the open market, he would certainly have a lot of attention and a lot of suitors. And I, I think the Montreal Canadiens do have to do something here. They have to think in terms of the big picture and say, hey, do we want to just, do we want to sign this guy and get it done and get it done long term? Or do we really want to start thinking about going down the other road, which is seeking out a trade? They could get a lot for him, but they will likely not get that number one defenseman, which he is. In return, they would get probably a package of things, and maybe that's for the best if that's how they feel. But for me, I think an asset like PK Subban is hard to find, and I think uh, you know, in retrospect, and I said at the time, identify your core players and your star guys and get them signed today because they're going to cost more tomorrow. And in this case, we're seeing that play out right in front of us. Yeah, Montreal is also another one of those teams that's had a, a pretty interesting uh, offseason in terms of one of the original uh, six teams, Thomas Vanek, even though he faded in the playoffs, he's no longer there. Uh, Josh Georges as well, uh, no longer uh, with the uh, Montreal Canadiens. Uh, once again, EJ Raddick of the NHL Network joining us. Another Canadian team that I'm very interested in figuring out their direction, uh, the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, the past couple of years, you've seen the NHL Network oil change, a lot of the youth movement going on uh but now they have uh they got Benoit Pouillot uh from the Rangers Mark Fain I believe from New Jersey is also with Edmonton what's the direction of the Oilers it's been a little bit of a while a little while uh since they've been able to make noise and they went through this youth movement now they've acquired a few pieces to go with uh some of the young players so where is this uh oil change going I guess well I don't think it's going anywhere fast <laughs> and I think the, the the big well, the big problem is that you look just again Western Conference, yeah, teams in their division, Anaheim, Los Angeles, San Jose, uh, Vancouver still is uh, I think a pretty good team, uh, although they are a team in transition as well. Uh, Phoenix is a competitive group, and then you think again in the Western Conference, the teams I mentioned earlier in the Central, 
it's not easy to make the playoffs in that conference. It is not easy to, for that. But to think that an Edmonton Oilers team that has struggled so much over the last several years is all of a sudden it's gonna, the light is going to click on and everybody's going to move forward. I think that there's a lot of challenges there still. Uh, I'm not sold as on Dallas Eakins as a coach. Uh, the good news is they brought in Craig Ramsey, who's a veteran assistant coach that's a really sharp guy that I think if Dallas Eakins is smart, he'll lean on Craig Ramsey and help his development as a head coach. Uh, I think they've got to make uh, maybe some decisions on some of their younger players. Uh, they did with Sam Gagne, and they will him out. Um, they're still really hurting, I think, on the blue line, and you know they need help there. They've got some young guys coming. Uh, I think a signing like a Fane and a, and a Benoit Puyat, those are guys I think they've signed that are they view as guys who play in the NHL and have experience and can help see guys in that room to help buffer the development of some of the younger guys and not force them to bring guys in too soon. I'm not a big fan of signing Benoit Puyat to a five-year contract. This is a guy who's played his last five years on one-year contracts, uh, and he was in a great spot with New York. Good line mates, a coach that really supported him, and I think it will be a struggle for him in Edmonton moving forward unless he has truly changed as a player. I don't know if that's the case. And Mark Fane is a guy I saw in New Jersey, and, and again, I'm not uh, not real sold on uh, Mark Fane as a guy that you'd sign to a to that kind of uh, term and money. So uh, I think there's still a lot of questions in Edmonton. There's some good young players there. There's some good young prospects in their system. Uh, I get Darnell Nurse on defense. Uh, and Oscar Clefbaum. I mean, these are some guys that can help this group moving forward. But I think they've got a ways to go still. I think they've stood in their own way a couple of, in a couple of different circumstances. They've had a number of coaches there in the last seven or eight years. And uh, this is an organization that it's gonna have, they're going to have to show me that uh, they can do more uh, if they're going to get to that next level. And it's not like I said, if they were in the East, much better, much different situation, a better opportunity to start to make, to make up ground and make progress. In the Western Conference, it'll be, I think it'll be extremely difficult with all the challenges that they have in front of them right now. They've got a ways to go. Once again, E.J. Raddick of the NHL Network joining us. Uh, a couple of the things that have been talked about uh, with the NHL uh, Competition Committee in terms of uh, rules changes going into the 2014-2015 season, proposed rules changes in the 2014-2015 season, the long line change for overtimes uh, to promote possibly promote uh, more scoring in overtimes and decrease the number of shootouts as well as the expanded uh, trapezoid. Your opinion on whether those two big rules will be passed and the impact uh, in terms of players or teams if those rules pass? Well, the, uh, the, in terms of the long change in overtime, it's a, it's a, it's a small adjustment to try to alleviate the... What the league, the league is, is not going to move away from the shootout. Okay. Uh, speaking to, you know, people in, in, in the high, right, high reaches of the league. I mean, they, they, they show, they'll always show you the research that fans like the shootout. Some, some, uh, media and some old school hockey people maybe don't like the shootout as much. For me, uh, I don't have a problem with it in the regular season. I like games decided. People pay a lot of money to go to these games during the regular season. You'd like to walk away with a winner and a loser in those games. For me, I'd make it real simple. I would just say, if you win a game, no matter if it's an overtime shootout, whatever, it's a win, two points. And if you lose, no matter how you lose, it's no points. Make yeah. it simple. But it is uh, the way they do it now. But they're looking to have fewer games go to shootout. They want to have an opportunity for these games to be decided maybe in that five-minute overtime window. So uh, it's you can do the, the homework uh, statistically. More goals are scored 
in the second period. Part of that is the long change and the fact that, uh, you know, defensemen get caught on the ice, can get caught on the ice longer, tired, fatigued, make mistakes, they end up in the net. So it's a small change. It's something they really they could have done a while back. I know Damon, Damien Echeverrieta, who works in the Department of Player Safety, this has been a thing that he has been kind of uh, pushing forward for like several years. And it seems like a very common-sense approach. It finally got some traction with some of the managers over the last uh, 12 to 18 months. Lulon Rolo, I know, was one guy. When he gets behind something, all of a sudden there's a little bit more push among the general managers. So uh, I think it's something that will be helpful. And, uh, you know, in terms of that, what they're looking to accomplish there, which is simply to have more games and with team play as opposed to, the, to a shootout. And, again, saying that the league isn't looking to move away from the shootout, they just like to have an opportunity for those games to be decided in the uh, 60 or 65 minutes before that. Any goaltender that comes into your mind, if they do expand the trapezoid area uh, where a goalkeeper can play the puck, any goaltenders in mind that may uh, be served well if the trapezoid is expanded a little bit more going into uh, next season? I don't know. I mean, you know, I'll tell you what. I, I never liked this rule to begin with. Yeah. Uh, I, I really don't. I really don't like it. I think it's punishing guys with skill. I mean, guy goaltenders. They, they, you know, not all the guys handle the puck like Marty Berger or Marty Turco. Uh, there are very few guys that handle the puck that well. The guys that do it well, why should they be punished uh, by not being able to use the skill they have? I think it also helps, you know, when we have a league where we're trying to get away from obstruction over the last 10 years and a goaltender is not able to come out and help play a puck, well, now a defenseman is, you know, you're not holding up guys as much anymore. You know, those defensemen end up being in a situation where they can really take a pretty nasty hit in the corner going back to play puck. So, for me, I never liked the rule. I think the guys who are good at it should benefit from being good at it. I think the guys that aren't very good at it should have to, have to deal with a decision as to whether they're going to go out and handle a puck. And I can tell you this, watch it. You go back, because they said they put this rule in to create more offense. Yeah. I think when you go back, goalies coming out to play the puck created more silliness and more offensive chances because most of them aren't good at it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, for me, I never I never liked the rule. I wish that they would just take the trapezoid right out. We've had enough of a look at it now. But uh, for uh, at least for the time being, it's staying and Looks like they're going to make some changes to it, but uh, I never liked this rule, and I wish it would go away. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you 100%, and I'm uh, one of the old school. I don't need shootouts. Um, I loved it when they first uh, took out the fifth player and made four and four overtime, and I yeah. think there was a big difference in terms of the number of ties uh, before the four-on-four implementation uh, in overtime than when they first implemented it. I like four-on-four. If you have four-on-four with a long change, uh, I think there'll be yeah, a lot so, well, of that's what I think I, I, I agree with you. I think there's a chance that that will, you will, will alleviate some of the, you know, they just want to get that percentage down. You know, I wanted to add one other thing, too. We were Go talking ahead. before about P.K. Subban, yeah. and I wanted to mention it before we finish, is that uh, in Columbus, you know, I talked about Subban having this bridge deal, and the Montreal Canadiens had a, a decision to make a couple of years back, and they opted to push for a bridge contract, and now here they are with P.K. Subban arbitration, and who knows where it goes from here. In the end, I think he will end up getting signed. He will end up getting paid a lot more money than they could have paid him on a long-term deal a few years ago, but that's just my opinion as to how it will turn out. But in Columbus, they are in a very similar position with Ryan Johansson, their star center, mm-hmm. 
He's had only the really one breakout season, which was this year. He had 33 goals. They're coming out of that first contract. They're looking towards the future. I just think they're pushing a little bit towards this bridge deal, and that's where it's going. I think that's just a disastrous decision by the by the Blue Jackets. This guy was the fourth overall pick. He's a big, legit number one center. He's only going to get better. They could do an eight-year deal right now for about five and a half or six million. As I talked about before, we had a similar deal: eight times six, eight times five and a half. Clap their hands, shake hands, be done with it for eight years, and just watch this guy continue to get better. And that's what the expectation is. You don't want to be in a situation where you're betting against your own team and your own players. You want them to be successful. By, by anybody who's watched this guy knows that I mean, he's the real deal. Unless he has some kind of significant injury, he's going to continue to be the guy. Why not get it done now instead of trying to play games with a bridge deal, create hard feelings? Because those feelings, as we see here with Subban, they're going to come back. And when the hammer is going to be held by Ryan Johansson in a few years, and it will be, he'll be able to swing, he'll be able to swing it hard. And for a Columbus team that needs to keep their assets in place, suppose he decides one day that, you know what, I had a nice run here, but I'm going to go test free agency. Believe me, there'll be 29 teams lining up to get his services at that point. So for me, I, I, I wanted to just to kind of tack that onto the Subban thing. Yeah. It's an interesting situation in Columbus right now. If the Jackets have the foresight here, if they have the foresight and they're willing to bet on their player, which they should because he's got the, he's got the goods, they should do the long-term deal with Ryan Johansson now, buy some of those unrestricted years well in advance, and uh, have that relationship cemented moving forward and, and move forward as a franchise because this guy is going to be a big part of that group going forward. It's an important couple of years coming up for the Columbus Blue Jackets, especially given the fact that they were more than competitive uh, in their first-round series against the Pittsburgh Penguins. And you could see that the Columbus Blue Jackets are a team that they're emerging. Nathan Horton, when he gets back uh, uh, healthy and playing for the Columbus Blue Jackets, a big-time uh, playoff performer, as he showed with the Bruins, uh, the Columbus Blue Jackets have a very important couple of years ahead in terms of rising in the uh, uh, Eastern Conference. Uh, EJ Raddick, I thank you so very much for joining us talking NHL in these warm months, even though it's not as warm as usually it is in New York and New Jersey. Uh, E.J. Raddick of NHL Network Insider Analyst, and as I said earlier, Oracle of all things NHL and hockey uh, in general. E.J., I cannot thank you enough for the time, and we will talk with you for sure down the road as the uh, NHL season 2014-2015 picks up. All right, my pleasure. All the best. Can you believe the first game in the National Football League that counts in the standings is here? It's just a preseason, but the Buffalo Bills will be playing the New York Giants in the Hall of Fame game in Canton, Ohio. And each team had one of its former players be inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame on Saturday for the New York Giants. Uh, defensive end and pass rush specialist Michael Strahan. And for the Buffalo Bills, one of the great wide receivers of all time, Andre Reid, inducted into the hollow halls of Canton, Ohio, in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And if you were able to see the induction ceremony on Saturday evening, you would have known that there were many... Many 
Buffalo Bills fans in Canton, Ohio, cheering on Andre Reid and cheering on the Buffalo Bills teams of the 80s and 90s that were so great in the AFC. And one of those Bills fans that made it to Canton, Ohio, joins us on the Alada Sports Talk podcast. She is a staff attorney in Buffalo. Christine McMenamin joins us now on the Alada Sports Talk podcast. First of all, Christine, thank you so very much for joining us. And how are you doing today? Thank you for having me. I'm great. Uh, how was your experience in Canton? Was it uh, everything that you thought it would be and more? Just take me through your time in Canton, Ohio. Oh, it was definitely a very memorable experience. Um, Andre Reed has been my favorite Buffalo Bill for my entire life. I was a child when they made it to the four Super Bowls, and I just really looked up to him, and I, I really liked him. And to see him get inducted was a dream of mine. And when he finally was um, set to be inducted and chosen to become a Hall of Fame member, we definitely said we have to be there. Mm -hmm. So we did get the tickets and made the trek up from Buffalo. And to see that many other Buffalo Bills fans who did the same um, was really incredible. And to feel all of that love for Buffalo there um, and the love for Andre, it was really, really great. Uh, can you expound a little bit more as to why of all the players that the Buffalo Bills had that were doing so well uh, in the early 90s and helping the Bills to go to four Super Bowls in a row, why Andre Reid uh, was your favorite player amongst all those great players for the Bills? Um, I guess, well, one, he's a receiver. He scores a lot of touchdowns. So as a, a kid, you know, I was around 9 or 10 years old, um, I got to see him. He made a lot of the exciting plays, of course, with Jim Kelly. Um, so he got to score the touchdowns, and he, you know, he he was most visible, I would say, um, for a, a kid watching those Super Bowls and not really, you know, kind of knowing football, but not really knowing the ins and outs of the game and and how much work all the other guys on a team put in to make that touchdown happen. But I really, I just for some reason, and I don't, I don't really know the exact reason. I guess. Um, he he kind of embodied like a sense of um, well pride you know in my team because this this guy was so good and he seemed to he seemed to do it in a way that wasn't so flashy um, you know every now and then he could um, you know spike the football or something like that but it was a different era than the time now when some of the receivers you know have more of the spotlight on them where I feel like Andre Reid at the time. It was more about the team and, you know, definitely the connection between him and Kelly. And um, it was just something something uh, about his humility, I guess, and um, really giving credit to the whole team. And those guys in, in general, all the Hall of Famers, Kelly, Thurman, um, Bruce, and Andre, they really were a unit. And um, so I guess I just I chose him out of them that I really looked up to him, and really he became my favorite. But it was part of that whole, you know, this is the team. Once again, joined by Christine McMenamin, a staff attorney in Buffalo who just attended the Pro Football Hall of Fame induction ceremonies in Canton, Ohio. Uh, talk about a few of the other experiences that you might have had in Canton. Did you just go there to see uh, Andre's speech and some of the other speeches by the other inductees? So what else stood out to you uh, when you made the trip to Canton outside of all the Buffalo Bills fans uh, that you mingled with in Canton, Ohio? What else stood out? 
Um, well, we didn't end up this this visit going into the Hall of Fame. I have been there previously in the last couple of years, um, which was amazing. It was my I went with my family, and my brother and my father had actually um, went to the Hall of Fame, so they they did that. Um, and we just we kind of took around the sites. We stopped in some of the neighboring towns um, just to kind of take in you know the area. And everywhere we went, we did run into Buffalo Bills fans. They were very easy to spot, usually wearing their gear. And then um, yesterday, we made the trip into Canton, and we just kind of walked around uh, the stadium area where they had all of the merchandise and, and all the activities. And then we just went up to our seats and really talked to the other fans and it was such a sense of community because people from Buffalo in general are very um, friendly and, you know, we're a family. Basically, we're all a family. And so, you know, you saw somebody else with that Buffalo Bills jersey or, or shirt on and we just instantly, you know, talked and, and really had that connection of being there for this purpose. So it was, it was a great day. Uh, what jersey did you have on? I had a Reed jersey on, of course, <laughs> and my jersey was signed by Andre um, this year when he had an autograph session um, due to getting inducted into the Hall of Fame. So uh, I have a signed jersey from him, luckily. And that, and you had it signed when he was in Buffalo, or was it somewhere else where he you was, got it signed? He was in Niagara Falls, okay. and um, so my father and I stood in line for about four hours <laughs> to see him and meet him, but... Like I said, I mean, he was my idol. I really, he was my favorite Buffalo Bill um, growing up. So this was my first chance at meeting him. So I, the four hours was well worth it. <laughs> and I got to meet him. I got to talk to him. And I got my jersey signed by him. So that was really great. And I got to congratulate him personally on being inducted. Uh, once again, joined by Christine McMenamin on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. Uh, were your bosses okay with playing hooky for four hours? for an Andre Reid signed oh, oh, jersey? Oh, it was on the weekend, so I was fine. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, which side were you... Uh, well, first of all, I do want to ask you, uh, did you... Uh, were you there for all of the speeches? Uh, for the, I was. Okay. Uh, was there... I was there for, from start to finish. From start to finish. I, I guess outside of Andre Reid's speech, was there a speech or two by any of the other inductees that might have stood out in your mind in terms of a message that they wanted to convey or just the excitement that they had when they spoke? So any uh, any other speeches that might have popped out in your mind when you were there watching all of the greats be inducted into Canton? Well, actually, I did know after we were when we were leaving, I said, this year, I usually watch the Hall of Fame induction speeches on TV, and, you know, sometimes speeches are more charismatic than others, and I said, really, this year's class was just, they had some really, really great speeches, very emotional, very inspiring. Um, two that stood out to me besides Andre was Claude Humphrey, um, because he had to wait so long to be inducted, and it was really, he was really funny, and he started out saying they took told me I had 10 minutes, but I've been waiting 30 years for this, so I'm going to take my time. And he really deserved it. And he he just had a really memorable speech because he spoke from the heart. He um, told his journey, but he also really made it um, funny and entertaining. And the other favorite of mine was Anais Williams because he was so inspiring and just um, very powerful. And especially, I don't know if it came across on the television, but in the stadium, 
you could hear a pin drop when he was speaking because everyone was just hanging on to every single word he was saying. They knew it was that important. And um, there weren't, you know, side conversations. Everybody was just focused on him. And then he ended up at the end getting the crowd involved. And um, that was really great. And it was very inspiring to hear all of those people chanting, you know, his lines. And it was just that one was, I, I'm going to remember that one as well. I do want to ask, you mentioned Aeneas Williams, and he's a very powerful speaker. He's a pastor uh, in the uh, St. Louis area. Were you on the uh, begin with the end in mind side, or were you on the die empty side um, in terms I of was, the chant? I was the begin um, with the end in mind yes. side. Okay, okay. That uh, All those speeches were absolutely great, and I'm so happy that uh, there were uh, many speeches, and there Usually all the speeches are uh, very memorable, and to be able to uh, be a part of that uh, must have been just amazing to listen to it. Uh, once again, Christine McMenamin joins us, and we've talked a little bit about the Bills of the past, and I do want to talk to you a little bit uh, before we head out about the Buffalo Bills of the present, the uh, 2014 uh, Buffalo Bills. Last season, uh, a new era in terms of the quarterback, E.J. Manuel, uh, starting. Didn't get to play a whole lot uh, because of a myriad of injuries. And the Bills had their ups and downs. Their ups, they beat Carolina. Beat Carolina. Uh, excuse me, we're so close to uh, beating the Patriots in the season opener. A lot of close losses um, and not really too far away from being a playoff contender. Um, your quick assessment and overview of the Bills going into this season as they start their uh, season in earnest today with the uh, New York Giants preseason game. Just your take on the Buffalo Bills as of August 3rd and how they look to you. Well, we obviously um, suffered a, a major setback with the loss of Kiko Alonso, the rookie from last year. Um, but EJ's been looking really good, and EJ now has that target of Sammy Watkins, and he's been electric in so far in camp. So we're really excited that hopefully EJ and Sammy can link up and really create some of that magic from the 90s bills of Kelly, Kelly and Andre. And um, we're, we're hopeful that they are definitely going to be um, in playoff contention this year if EJ can stay healthy and the rest of the guys can stay healthy. Um, like I said, it was a setback with Kiko's injury, but we think that the rest of the defense can step up, and there are some young guys that maybe hopefully can fill that void a little bit. And, again, we were hoping Sammy Watkins can really light up that offense and, and get us to the playoffs this year. So can this and – Will this be the year that the Bills end their uh, playoff drought? I believe it's, what, 99 uh, was the last year that the Bills made the playoffs. Is this the year to end the playoff drought? We sure hope so. We <laughs> think so, so far. <laughs> uh, Christine McMenamin, it has been a pleasure getting a chance to talk to you about all things Buffalo Bills past and present. Uh, we do wish you all the best uh, in your travels back uh, to Buffalo, and we will catch up with you to talk to you about more Buffalo Bills going forward. Christine McMenamin, who was in Canton, Ohio, for the induction ceremony of the 2014 Pro Football Hall of Fame class. Thank you so very much for joining us, and uh, we'll definitely talk soon for sure. Thank you for having me. I am so surprised that I had a very cordial conversation with Christine, a Buffalo Bills fan, given the fact that I am 
a New York Jets fan. But we do thank Christine McMenamin so very much for joining us on the podcast, talking about all things Buffalo Bills and her experience in Canton, Ohio. And we also thank EJ Raddick for the very, very in-depth conversation about the National Hockey League and free agency and a very, very interesting take that he had at the very end about the Columbus Blue Jackets and their star, Ryan Johansson. So that's a wrap for episode number 11. Stay tuned next week. Well, actually, later this week for episode number 12. We hope to release episode number 12 by Friday. We have at least one guest lined up, Todd Husak of the Pac-12 Network and the former quarterback at Stanford University, the former quarterback who led the Cardinal to the Rose Bowl in 1999. He joins us to talk about and break down the Pac-12 season in 2014, and we will have a couple of other guests as well for episode number 12. And also stay tuned to A Lot of Sports Talk, the website, alotofsportstalk.com. We have an interview that we had a couple of years back with Derek Brooks, who was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame this past weekend. So we put up an interview that we had with Derek Brooks from almost a couple of years ago as he was at an NFL Play 60 event in the Chelsea Pierce section of Manhattan. So check out that interview, that on-camera interview that we had with Derek Brooks. Once again, go to our website, www.alotofsportstalk.com. Dot com. So we do thank you so very much for joining us on episode number 11, and we will see you later on this week, right? Right. You take care. Bye-bye.